News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. People who are unvaccinated are definitely a minority of the population, but the majority now say enough is enough when it comes to dealing with them. Let's take a look at the latest poll from Ipsos on this topic. Joining us now for more on this is Sean Simpson. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Okay, so we're finding out that, what, is patients running out, would you say? Yeah, it is. Uh, it seems that frustration may be turning to anger among those who are vaccinated, as, 30, as rather 67% of Canadians support further restrictions on those who are unvaccinated, and one half uh, come out and say that they uh, are to blame. The people who are holding out on vaccines are to blame for the pandemic being as long as it has been. Right. So what I find interesting about this latest poll, though, is that people are saying they would like more restrictions put in place for those people. For those people. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, what those restrictions are, of course, remains to be seen. In in Quebec, we've we've uh, had the idea of a a tax uh, that uh, has has come out from the premier there. When we tested that idea, 51, that's about 52 percent of people say that we should, in fact, tax the unvaccinated. So split right down the down half uh, in terms of the country. Uh, for example, $100 per day that you're in the hospital for COVID, 51% support that. Uh, but some have also made the argument that that could be a slippery slope mm-hmm. if we're going to tax unvaccinated people. Should we tax smokers? Should we tax drinkers? And the majority of Canadians are saying, no, that it's not the same thing. Uh, and only four in 10 support that idea. So for most, it's not a slippery slope. COVID presents a a unique challenge, uh, and um, roughly half of Canadians are ready to throw the book at the other half. Or not the other half, rather, it's about 10% or 15% remain unvaccinated. I also found it fascinating that you were asking people about how they would, how this affects relationships, how they would treat someone or the kind of relationship they would have with someone that they knew was unvaccinated. What did you find out? Yeah, well, only 36% of Canadians say that they would let an unvaccinated person in their home, meaning that roughly two-thirds would not. 39% would require someone to take a test before coming in their home. And and, uh, this contrasts with about 73% of the population who says that they would let uh, a vaccinated person in in their home. So these questions are are obviously being asked, and Canadians, in fact, acknowledge that they're they're asking uh, those those questions. But here's a, this is a really startling statistic. And when I saw it, I mean, I'm not surprised by a whole lot when I see polling because I see oh, a nice. lot of it. But this, this, but this one surprised me. One in five said that they would end a friendship because of someone's vaccination. Status. What? Yep, one in five. And that skews more uh, more men than women, in fact, uh, and more and more younger people. So uh, clearly there, there have been some contentious arguments uh, between friends, among families. Uh, and at doorsteps uh, across the country, and uh, 21% translates to you know somewhere around five million adult Canadians who say that they would end a friendship with another person because of their vaccination status. That is so interesting. And also, what about when it comes to welcoming somebody into their home? Like even if you invite somebody over and yeah. finding out whether they're unvaccinated or not. Yeah, and and uh, if they find out that they're unvaccinated, nearly two-thirds would not let that person in their home. Um, so we're, we're, it's really becoming a two-tier society, right, where this question, are you vaccinated, um, 
not just impacts the public setting, you know, if you can go to concerts or the bowling alley or the movie theater, that sort of thing, but it's now creeping into the personal lives of Canadians and, and their doorsteps, or who they're going to let in their, their home, who they're going to be friends with. Uh, and and I, I haven't really seen, I can't remember an issue of, of, of health, of public policy, of anything that has been discontentious, right. where you've got half of Canadians saying we need to do more, the other half are saying, no, no, we need to accommodate. And it's not just uh, sort of randomly distributed. It's certain groups who are, who are you know, more likely to say these things than others. Men, for example, taking a harder line than women. Older people, for example, taking a harder line than uh, younger people. Uh, those in Quebec, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, taking a harder line, meaning you know, more likely to support mandatory vaccination, more likely to want further restrictions. Those in Ontario, Alberta, and BC, a little less likely, for example. So there are just so many cleavages that exist here um, that is, is, is causing and, and making people to feel more divided, I think, than ever. And it's no surprise that in some of our other contextual research that we do, this notion of social cohesion is declining. If people are staying home all the time and they're picking fights with other people based on vaccination status, then it's no wonder. Wow. Okay. This is so interesting. That is this, have we seen this before, Sean, in your polling during the pandemic, or is this something that happened gradually, would you say? I think this is something that's happened gradually. You know, earlier on in the pandemic, Canadians were essentially giving our political leaders a, a free ride. We were rallying behind our leaders. Approval ratings were high. Support for virtually every policy that, um, uh, that government proposed was, was high. If we take an issue of lockdowns, for example, when we asked uh, if people would support further rounds of lockdowns to, to stem the tide of a new variant, uh, at that particular moment in the summer, two-thirds of Canadians supported that idea of lockdowns. Now we're down to a slim, a slim majority. It's 53%, I, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, now even that isn't a no-brainer. And, and the more lockdowns we have, the more people are going to be against lockdowns. And then what does government do? They, they've sort of identified this as their circuit breaker to try to stem the, 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 the tide of, of, of Omicron and other variants. Mm-hmm. But if Canadians are, are increasingly opposing uh, lockdowns, well, then what's the next step? Oh, boy. Okay, so this just makes it so much more interesting about what is the next step. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for your time. That's been my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, it is not easy being a trucker these days. You've been hearing in the news today about the trucker convoy that is making its way eastward to protest vaccine mandates. Meanwhile, here in Metro Vancouver, you may have seen over the weekend the hundreds of B.C. truckers that took to the roads on Saturday. They're protesting what they say is poor highway maintenance and dangerous driving conditions. So to talk more about that situation, we're joined now by Vijay Deep Sahasi, who's president of the West Coast Truckers Association. Thank you for being here. Uh, Good morning, Simi, to you and all your listeners. Tell me, Vijadeep, how bad is the highway system right now? Like, what are you most concerned about? Simi, it has been bad for long, long years. Um, you can well imagine how bad it is uh, that we uh, lose one life almost every day on these highways. What is this? Like, what is so bad about the highways? Like, when you say highway maintenance, what is the problem? Uh, especially in winters, the cleaning is a big, big issue uh, because the cleaning is not done up to the mark, which it should be. And um, we have slippery roads, ice on the roads, due to which the vehicles are hard to stop. And um, uh, not only the truckers, but even the other road users, cars and other uh, smaller vehicles, they tend to slip and, um, you know, uh, skate on the ice and then they 
hit big rigs and the lives are lost. So right. I mean, uh, cleaning of the roads, de-icing is a main issue. Right. So the maintenance of the highways, do you think this has gotten worse in the last few years? Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, this year, it was like we have truckers who have been on these roads for more than 25 years. Uh, when they came up to us and they said, like, in the last years, we had, they have never seen it so bad, which it is this year. So it has obviously gotten more bad. What are some of the worst areas? Like when you're driving, is there areas that you just want to stay away from? Well, you can't avoid them because I mean, we only have this highway which connects from east to west. So if you have to go to um, Calgary or Edmonton, you have to go through those highways. You don't have many alternatives. Okay, so then what is what do you see happening out there on the roads, Vijadeep? Um, you know, uh, our main complaint is that, you know, the plowing should be done more regularly, especially when, when we know the weather is bad. People have options. They, they can delay their trips for a day or two, but we as truckers do not have those options more often because winters are long. And these conditions, we have to keep uh, the supply chain uh, on a regular basis. We don't want any irregularities on the, the supply chain so that the uh, general public should not suffer because of low, low supplies. And uh, being a vital part of the supply chain, <clears throat> we need these roads to be cleaned more often. And whosoever is responsible should be taking them more seriously. So you're saying it's not just like the road system, it's also the other people driving on the roads. I won't blame the uh, people who are driving on the road because if the road is slippery and it's ice on the roads, um, irrespective of the experience you have, you will not be able to stop. Right. So what, what do you want the government to do here? Uh, we have already submitted a memorandum to the government. We have so many issues on the road, Simi. Washrooms is another problem. No parking areas is another problem. Bad phone connection areas is another problem. So, you know, if you have to go and pick up a cup of coffee and we park our trucks, recently it has been seen in Kamloops, our um, uh, fellows they just stopped on the truck because they were stuck on the highways. As soon as they stopped on the highway, I mean, on the side of the road where it was a, a service road, they went to pick up a cup of coffee and there was no parking sign uh, anywhere there. But still, the city of Kamloops, um, the bylaws came and issued them tickets. So a cup of coffee costed them more than $25, $30, $40. So that is the respect which we get uh, at the end of the day after serving under those treacherous conditions. And uh, so these are all issues. I and mean, there are numerous issues. But here right now, the main issue is to save lives, especially in winter, which we do right. because of bad roads. But that you make an excellent point there. Like when you think about driving the I-5, which I know many people have done, it's nothing but like rest stops and, and geared for more truckers. We don't see a lot of like rest stops like that in the same way here in, in Canada, do we? Absolutely. I think um, we can only count very, very few rest stops, which are actually the truck stops, we can say. Uh, if we cross over the border, uh, which we always be, you know, when we talk with people, they start comparing us with the uh, roads just across the border. We actually cannot because they have numerous highways and rest areas just for, keep coming one after the other. They are full facilities, uh, rest areas with um, heat and light in it. Whereas if you talk about our simple washrooms, which are there for the truckers, which normally the general public don't even have to use because they are on the brake checks. 
and uh, they're ignored by uh, general public if i was to be driving in a car i might not have even noticed those uh, washrooms they are in a pathetic state of affairs like no light no heat and in the sub zero temperatures how a person can even get into those uh, uh, washrooms yeah so that was the protest on saturday right are there going to be more protests well we don't want to go to vancouver we do not want to disturb people we do not want to disrupt anybody we just wanted public support with us which we have at present and uh, we do not uh, we are going to be talking to the authorities now now that they have finally contacted us um and as, as we all are uh, active truck drivers the west coast trucking association comprises of all it's a voluntary organization it's all truck drivers which are on the road practically and we don't want to hold these kind of protests because we belong to the highways we do not want to take a truck to downtown vancouver but uh, we'll go from here when we meet with the government and we see if the improvements are there we, we don't want to go there right. we just want to go there and enjoy not not in a truck that was on our day off we had to go there so you can well imagine we barely get time off and our families yeah. uh, we had to compromise with our family time so you did hear from the government then and you will be meeting with them on this absolutely yes okay and when is that going to happen well maybe later this week we are just going to get in touch with them and then we can see how and when can be uh, arrange a meeting which is a cordial time because as i said we all are active truck drivers we are there on the road and it's not always possible to be on zoom or telephone all the time because of bad connection areas or road conditions right. or pullouts all right we'll see what happens let us know how that goes thank you for your time this morning thank you for having me on your show and thank you so very much to all of you who could uh, make our voices reach uh, the ears of the concerned people oh we certainly hope the conditions will get better out there that's vijay deep sahasi who's president of the west coast truckers association now there's two truckers protests here right that are going on to keep that in mind one is the convoy that is going eastwards towards ottawa to protest the vaccine mandates but this issue is different this is the bc one this is the protest you may have seen in the metro vancouver area on saturday it involved 100 50 truckers and they are protesting road conditions and the situation for truckers here in bc they say the roads aren't being maintained well enough which i can certainly see that you see here about all the accidents and things that are happening on highway 3 and the coquihalla everything like that and they say highway maintenance is a huge issue and just taking care of truck drivers on the roads is a huge issue find a way in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi talking about the concerns that truckers have about moving things around in our province. And let me tell you, the last year has really illustrated to us how critical our whole supply chain system is. The truckers are a part of that. Our agriculture sector is a huge part of that. The recent floods show us, though, that we are very sensitive to extreme weather, whether it's wildfires, flooding, you name it. So what do we need to do to strengthen our agriculture sector's resilience in the face of climate change and these extreme weather events. Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Andrew Bennett. He's an irrigation designer who owns a small farm in Rossland. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be on the program, Simi. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about uh, your farm and what you do there. <laughs> my farm uh, my farm's quite small. We've got some chickens and goats and we uh, grow some some plants in a small orchard. It's uh, It's... It's just a tiny thing. Uh, really, it's the school of hard knocks. It's where I've learned about uh, all the challenges that, that face bigger farms out there. So it's kind of a microcosm. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd call it uh, an experimental farm. (laughs) Okay, that's a good way to put it. So given all the challenges that we've seen over the last year, what do you you think that we need to do to help some of those bigger farms? Yeah, well, really, when we're looking at climate change resilience, one thing that always comes to mind for me is that the great solutions are win-win-win from every angle. Uh, I work with a number of programs that help farmers <clears throat> including the Climate and Agriculture Initiative, the Kootenai and Boundary Farm Advisors here in the uh, Southeast Interior, and uh, the Environmental Farm Plan Program, which works across the province. <clears throat> and all of these programs are really working to help farms grow food better. And when farms grow food better, they're building soil, they're storing more water, and they're putting more food in our local uh, system. This makes us more resilient as communities. It makes our farms more resilient to climate change when they have better access to uh, better soil and better water. And at the same time, it really uh, it, it helps reverse climate change. In fact, when you build soil, that is probably the best thing we could do as a society right now is, is build soil. Okay, so what are the things that are, that are being done then, Andrew, to prevent that from happening? Like, why aren't we building soil? What are we, what are we doing? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. Uh, One of the problems, the the big overarching problem, is that we've mismanaged our forests for a long time. Uh, There's no way to sugarcoat that. It's really time for us to look at forestry brand new. Uh, Clear cuts have increased the incidence of wildfire. It's not just climate change that is increasing wildfire. And all these clear cuts and wildfires they reduce the forest's ability to hold water. And this has a huge downstream impact, as farmers have known for a long time. And now with the floods in the Fraser Valley, uh, the the tragedy uh, there over the the past few months, uh, this has has really brought it to the fore for everybody. We really need to understand that forests are essential to our survival. Yeah. And we really need to get them back intact. Yeah, let's talk about wood waste here too, right? Because we are very prone to kind of clean up wood waste everywhere we see it. But how critical can that be to helping farms? Well, uh, wood waste can can help. Often farms look at wood waste as as a uh, as a waste product, as does our forestry industry. And slash piles are one of those practices. Burning slash, uh, it really has to to be changed. That that has to. We need to look at wood waste as a an opportunity to build soil. Uh, rather than as a problem to be burned. When we burn it, we take all of that wood um, that trees spend forever pulling out, pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and turning it into wood, and we just put it right back in the atmosphere. Uh, we can take that wood waste, and if we put it into uh, piles, cover it with mulch and soil, and let it rot slowly over a long period of time, uh, that locks up that carbon, turns right. it into soil, and ultimately turns it into more biodiversity and more water storage. This is so interesting. I know you do a lot of work with the Kootenai and Boundary Farm Advisors. So are you working with farms on this? Yes, I, I do. I, I'm very privileged to work with a lot of really wonderful farms uh, across the Kootenai and Boundary region uh, through the Kootenai and Boundary Farm Advisors. It's a very unique program, actually. Uh, extension, agricultural extension is a weak point in, in Canadian agriculture. If you go down south, In the U.S., there's far more farm extension, and that basically means connecting farmers uh, with expertise 
and with each other. So we run lots of workshops. We do um, we do one-on-one uh, work with farms where we visit farms and figure out the problem and connect them with experts. This kind of work is, is, is helpful to farmers and really helps pull the agricultural community together. Right. That's what we need moving forward to be more resilient as much as anything is those relationships. Andrew, where can people find out more information about this? Uh, well, it's all online. The Community Boundary Farm Advisors has a website, www.kbfa.ca. So anybody in our region in the southeast D.C. can go there. Uh, you know, a good place to start for farms across the province is the Environmental Farm Plan Program. Uh, get in touch with a planning advisor. They'll come to your farm. Uh, I work with them also. Uh, you you can also, uh, you know, go on other sites like the Climate and Agriculture Initiative. Their whole reason for being is to connect farms right. to good ideas. I love it. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Simi. Have a good day. You too. Fascinating work that you do. That's Andrew Bennett. He's an irrigation designer, owns a small farm in Rossland, but also spends a lot of his time helping farms adapt out there as his work with the Kootenai and Boundary Farm Advisors. You can find out more online. This is Mornings with Simi. We are talking this morning about hospital pay parking and the impact this is having on people. The fact that it's going to be reinstated in March. There will be a few exemptions, but man, this is really affecting a lot of people. Linda wrote me to say, I went to Victoria Hospital every day for eight weeks, September to November, arriving to pay parking in a panic the first time. Then I found out I didn't have to run out every hour. And this stress that was relieved, she said, was immeasurable. The expense hurts too. And people are always coming and going. So it was like a five to 10 minute wait driving around at the most, she said, to find parking. She said, Minister Dix must not return to paying. It causes illness in us or prevents some of us who are financially strapped to attend as often as they would like. Linda, I believe that. I support that. Yes, there should be a better way. Joining us now for more on this is our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, it seems like everyone wants to keep free pay parking, so no pay parking at hospitals, except for the provincial government. Now, I know we've put in requests to get the health minister on the show, so hopefully that's going to happen in the next couple of days. But the government has two lines about reinstating pay parking at hospitals. Okay, so one, they say that the system is too abused by people who don't need hospital care. And and we know, at least in Metro Vancouver, you know, very busy, pricey area. So there are folks that abuse the system. They're taking spots away from people that really need them because they don't want to pay for parking on the street for things that have nothing to do with hospital stays. So that's a given. But we've also been talking on the show today about how there's lots of systems in place. Uh, you know, other places use them outside of BC, including uh, special codes that you can use um, in meters to bypass fees. Uh, you can punch in license plate numbers and, and show proof of stay. So there, there are there is existing technology out there that people can use. But let's be honest. What is hospital pay parking really about for the government? It's about money. It's about bringing in revenue and I looked into it and it is a very good chunk of money. And I find, Simi, that the older I get with every year, the more concerned I become as a taxpayer. So apparently $35 million in revenue uh, for the province of BC alone, just for pay parking. That's that's a lot of money. And we know our healthcare system is very expensive, but that's universal healthcare. That's the deal. And I talked to John Buss. He is with a group called Hospital Pay Parking. He says that when a patient pulls up to a hospital, like from that point forward, they are accessing 
our healthcare system and that the services from that point should just be free. Here's John Buss. In BC, the budget annually is about $11 billion. So there's a lot of taxpayer funds going into keeping the system going. And I think a lot of people understand that and they're both appreciative of it. But at the same time, I think there has to be uh, some understanding of where is the line between paying your taxes and user fees. And user fees typically are not part of universal healthcare. So in our advocacy, we're advocating for a system of accessing healthcare at the hospital level, that's the serious level, so that there's no obligation of, of financial penalty or, or, or feeding a meter during the time when you're accessing this, this healthcare. Yes, I mean, John Buss says that hospital patients and their loved ones, really anyone who has to use the hospital, shouldn't be used as an ATM. The theme here is we have to have this income. We just, we, we just can't go without it. And I have a problem with that. I think a lot of Canadians should have a problem with that. Um, it's taxpayer funded. It's prepaid. So I think the fact that we see an easy exploit, an easy road to profits, an easy revenue stream, that's problematic because people really don't have a choice. This is not a well-thought-out purchase. Going to the hospital often is not something that's well-thought-out. It's last minute. It's an emergency. So we can't be putting people in this position to have to deal with a bureaucracy that sees only the numbers, the dollar signs, when we're having taxpayers access something they've already paid for. It's prepaid. Those are such interesting points that he made there, Raji, because I know a lot of people would agree with that. Like there is there is a difference. If you're a patient, if you're going in for treatment at a hospital, I don't see why you should have to pay for parking. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen if the hospital says, or if the province says really, uh, okay, there's free parking, but only for some, it's going to feel really stressful for those who don't fit in that category and who have to pay for the parking. And some of those people, Simi, they're going to try to find a loophole, right? So that they don't have to pay either. And what John Buss was talking about in that clip there, it made me think like, yeah, this isn't, let's not compare this to so many other things. It's not a slippery slope. This isn't airport parking. It's healthcare and it's universal access here in BC. Last time I checked. And we always need to remind ourselves of that. I feel in the province, we have to remind ourselves that it's a universal healthcare system and that these things should be free. It's part of the system. Yeah, I feel like there's a way to do this with all the technology out there, right? Exactly. (laughs) We should be able to validate someone's parking. You do it at so many other places. Yeah. And well, tomorrow I'm going to be sharing some perspectives from other people at the hospital, including nurses, doctors, and volunteers. Now, here's a question for our listeners. Do you think that all of those people should be uh, getting free parking at the hospital too? Do you think nurses should? Do you think volunteers should? Do you think all doctors should? So that's something I'd really love to hear from our, uh, our dear listeners, our thoughtful listeners. Ah, that's a good question. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. So that's our Raji Sohal. We'll be continuing the conversation on the issue of hospital pay parking, but she brings up an excellent point there. So who should get 
free pay part like free parking at hospitals. Do you include staff in that? Do you include nurses and doctors? And should all of those people also be included? Or are we talking about patients who need to access the system? Are those the only people who should get free parking? This is Mornings with Simi. Post-secondary students have a lot on their minds right now. Besides the usual situation with school, they are incredibly worried about the impact of the Omicron variant to COVID-19 and what it's doing to their school situation. For instance, some schools, post-secondaries, are requiring students to be back in the building, in classrooms. In fact, that's what's happening at Simon Fraser University. So students there are planning a walkout this morning at 11 o'clock to show their concerns about returning to class while the Omicron variant continues to wreak havoc on the province. Meanwhile, you've got another university like UBC taking a different approach. They are returning to in-person classes not until February the 7th. So what kind of pressure is this putting on students? Well, joining us now is Ashana Bangu, who's the Vice President of Academic and University Affairs at the UBC Alma Mater Society. Ashana, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. What kind of concerns are you hearing from students? Well, I think there is the concern that, you know, they would get sick themselves. And worse is, I think, um, you know, when we hear it's time to live with the virus, it's time to live with the virus, and young people will be fine. What's really lost is that a lot of these young people have those vulnerable family members, right? So a lot of students are worried about getting their family members sick. And also a lot of students are immunocompromised. And it's not a lot. There are students who are immunocompromised or um, have underlying health conditions. So these are some of the concerns we're hearing. Okay, and what about UBC students at this point? Like, are they comfortable with the policies that the university has undertaken? Yeah, so to be honest, there is a diversity of views. There are students who want in-person learning, um, but then, you know, there's always that health concern. And it's important to lead from the margins in this area where you're helping out the people who have been overlooked the most during the pandemic, which I guess would be um, like immunocompromised students. So I think, yeah, it was a tough call that the university made, but um, as long as it's for the best interest of the health and safety of students, that's what it is. Okay. And has that been the case, though, throughout the pandemic? Like, it's been tough to juggle, I guess, what students are looking for. No. So, you know what? I think um, this time is probably the first big instance where we're seeing, like, such a diversity of views, right? Um, because there are students who really want that in-person experience, but there's also that concern about the new Omicron wave and how just about every other person seems to have it. And then there's also the fact that testing is really just rapid tests and they don't have to re- they don't have to be reported. So students are also, you know, concerned that the case counts aren't exactly very um, real, I guess, um, if that makes sense. Uh, so there are there have been times in the past where UBC has had to have a lot of advocacy done towards them by the students to take those extra measures. But I think this seems to be the first time that they're going above and beyond the PHO guidelines themselves. Has there been a response, though? Like, I'm curious, like, the students at Simon Fraser University are clearly very concerned and they feel they haven't gotten enough communication from the people in charge there. But what, what has that been your experience with that? So I think for communication from the people in charge is always a concern um it's just it just doesn't happen timely right you have students who are waiting for the last day um just refreshing that broadcast message page to see if the university has made an announcement they have travel plans we have a lot of international students students have like housing and leasing contracts so communication is really a concern when it comes to timely communication 
Um, and even now, I think the university said that they're going to reassess whether or not they will be back on February 7th, but we haven't heard anything yet. So, I mean, hopefully we'll hear something soon this week. Right. So you're still waiting for official confirmation. And I know there was a lot of concern during the exam period right at the beginning of December that for that, students were like, well, wait a minute, we're not necessarily comfortable coming in, coming to campus. Yeah, that was a huge concern because we had a lot of students. See, with exams are stressful in general. So, um, and missing a final exam is a huge deal for a student, even if they think they have COVID. So we saw a lot of students felt pressure to go to exams, even if they had symptoms, you know, COVID-like symptoms. There were some instances, like, yeah, they're anecdotal, but you can't be ignoring them just to be on the safe side, um, that students had COVID and they were going to go, or they were deliberately not getting tested so that they don't test positive and they don't have to miss the exam. So I think there was a real lack of adequate concessions policies at that time, or at least communication, once again, right? Um, students didn't know they had other options, and quite frankly, the options weren't that great at the time. How is it, though, Ashana, that it seems like every post-secondary institution can decide for themselves at this point? Well, I think, to be honest, in the University Act that governs all the institutions, it does say that post-secondary institutions can make their own decisions, right, independent from the government. Um, and the government isn't supposed to be interfering as much. So I would say that uh, post-secondary institutions making their independent choices is probably a good thing, considering that before the pandemic we were seeing a lot of, um, you know, only following the guidelines in terms of not implementing safer measures. Uh, so I think if, if post-secondary institutions are exercising that independence, as long as it's to go above and beyond the safety guidelines to keep students safe, I would say that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, so how is the next couple of weeks and like, what is the situation like up at UBC these days? I mean, the campus is definitely not nearly as full as it used to be or as it was last term. Um, and I think students are just waiting on the edge of the seat to see if are, are we coming back on February 7th? Are we not? And I think an important thing to note that we've been voicing to the university is that options are really important, right? There are still going to be immunocompromised students if we're if we're coming back on February 7th. And additionally, um, if we're coming back, it's important to have access to rapid testing and proper masks, not just cloth masks. And a lot of those can be unaffordable for students. So the university really needs to step up in these cases. All right. Still a lot of concerns there. All right, Ashana, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Have That's a good- you too. This is Shana Bangu, who's the Vice President of Academic and University Affairs at the UBC Alma Mater Society. Students there still have concerns. Uh, they are not expected to be back in class at UBC anyway until February the 7th. It is a different story at Simon Fraser University, where students there are actually planning a walkout this morning at 11 o'clock. They are concerned that administration there is pushing them to return to class while the Omicron variant continues to rage. And they said they don't want to return to class yet. They're not ready to return to in-person classes, which is what SFU has scheduled. So yeah, lots of concerns on that. I know that students at other institutions have had these same kinds of issues. So it is an ongoing situation. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi been so much discussion over the last few weeks about this new policy in the city of Vancouver, right? Where you get a cup from a fast drink or fast food, I should say, restaurant or your, you know, double double to go, whatever it may be, and you're paying that 25 cent disposable cup fee. Problem is, you don't always have a reusable cup with you or some of these places don't actually accept a reusable cup. 
Well, this is prompting some of them to start accepting those cups again, while others are adopting something called a cup share program. Might seem like a bit of a hard sell during the pandemic, but we're going to learn more about it. Jason Hawkins is with us now, the co-founder of reusables.com. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. How are we doing? I'm good, thank you. So how much more interest has there been in what you do over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's been a bit of a pickup for sure. We're seeing a lot of interest from cafes in the city of Vancouver after the, the implementation of the bylaw. So it's definitely been a busy period. So what is reusables.com? So reusables.com is a zero waste packaging as a service. So what that means is we're a container sharing platform to help people reduce their packaging waste. So we supply restaurants and cafes and grocery stores with stainless steel containers. So uh, takeout containers and um, reusable mugs and uh, it's a membership program so um, users can just go to a shop and um, show their QR code and and, uh, get a cup and then they have to return it within 14 days to any of the participating locations. We have about over 40 now in Vancouver and North Vancouver. Okay so that's interesting so it it would that's not something like bringing your own cup though is it? No, exactly. So uh, both options are great. Um, now it's um, certainly encouraged to bring your own mug or if you don't bring your own mug, then you can become a member and um, take one from, from the cafe. Okay. And so how busy has it been for you, though, since this bylaw came in? Are more and more businesses signing up for this? It's been really interesting. I think there's, uh, there's a lot of support from the community um, for reuse. And now cafes are, you know, it's becoming top of mind to offer a program. There's a lot of incentives for um, offering a program like reusables.com. So um, we've certainly seen an uptick since the beginning of January. Are we talking about big companies here, Jason? Because I think the big problem are the kind of McDonald's, the Tim Hortons, like those kinds of places. Yeah, you know, so our, our mugs are uh, are unique in that we, we say that they're brand agnostic, meaning they can be shared across multiple brands. So you won't see any, any you know, cafe's logo on our on our cups. Um, so we, you know, we work with brands like JJ Bean and, and, you know, a variety of other local cafes as well. So we sort of started more local, I'd say, uh, in um, East Vancouver is where we first launched and then we moved um, the West and, and then to, to North Vancouver as part of our East of Seymour initiative where we have uh, about 15 businesses there. So um, yeah, the large, large chains are expressing interest as well. Can you scale up? Absolutely. We've, uh, We've got a unique model where uh, we allow uh, what we call decentralized cleaning. So the cafes can clean themselves, but we also have our own cleaning facility too. So, um, you know, really it's about trying to uh, make sure it becomes easy and, and, um, and affordable for both the businesses and users. Right. Okay. So people, they can clean it themselves or they can send it out to you to get it picked up and clean then. You got it. Okay, so this makes sense then for a lot of retailers, especially right now. Um, is this done elsewhere on a bigger scale? So we took a lot of our inspiration from Europe. Uh, they're a little bit further ahead than we are in North America. Uh, there's some really interesting models there where um, they've moved past the traditional deposit system, um, which can be a little bit more incon- inconvenient. So in Germany, there's a business called Vital. Um, they, do, they do something really similar, and they've done quite well. I think they have over 10,000 locations in, uh, in Germany. So legislation there is a little bit further ahead, but um, certainly some interesting uh, innovation happening. So what would be the benefit to doing this as opposed to a company uh, just allowing people to bring their own reusable cups? Well, you know, it really it comes down to we're trying to replace single use with reuse, and we need to make it very convenient for people to do that because right now, you know, it's very easy to just get a cup and, and throw it away. 
Um, so our job is to try and replicate that, uh, but make the, the full circular solution a reality. Right. So you would have to keep this cup with you until the next time you went back. And could you trade it in the very next time you go back? Sure. You know, you can even sit down outside the cafe and then pop it back in the return bin. So all of our, our um, participating locations have return bins. So you know, if you get a coffee from JJ Bean and then you order takeout on a Friday and pick it up, you can bring your cup back on, on a Friday, as long as you return it within 14 days. Right. So are there different sizes? Yeah, we've got a 12-ounce cup and a 16-ounce cup right now. Um, those are pretty standard for coffee shops. And then for, for takeout containers, we've got a variety of different, variety of different sizes for um, different meals. And we're actually introducing a, a new bowl that's coming out in a couple months, which we're really excited about. So do you see this as the way of the future? Is this the way around this whole disposable problem? I think it's one of the ways around. Um, you know, we we feel like we're we're a part of the solution. Um, it's definitely going to take time for for people to uh, you know change their behavior and for businesses to adopt this. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, we are still you know very big advocates for bringing your own mugs and um, you know just trying to do the little things that matter. I think if everybody does uh, little things and we'll um, we'll make some progress. Right, you're getting more and more places signing up then, Jason. So this this is something that you think I know in a pandemic it might be a little bit hard to convince people to do this. Yeah, you know, it's um again like we just we look at the, the experts and we follow the guidelines as far as uh, what they're suggesting and um you know, based on what we're seeing now, uh reuse as long as, you know, cafes and restaurants are following the health and safety standards, which most of them are, I'm sure, then um, we're, we're in the clear. So, um, you know, I think sustainability is becoming top of mind now for people following COVID. So uh, we're glad to be able to provide a solution. That's an interesting one. All right, Jason, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And best of luck. That's Jason Hawkins, who's a co-founder of Reusables.com. This is interesting. I mean, this may be the way of the future for us, particularly here in the city of Vancouver with this bylaw passed. Like, you know, 10 years ago, it seemed like a radical idea to get people to pay for a disposable bag, right? A plastic bag when you went to the store. We have come around to that. We know that. We try to bring our own bags. We try to get around that. Now, of course, this new one in Vancouver anyway, is that you pay 25 cents to get a disposable cup if you go and get a, like a beverage somewhere. Now, that could change behavior. The question is, how do you how do you respond to that? Do you take your own cup around? A lot of these places won't let you use your own cup. If you say, here, excuse me, could you put my medium-sized Coke in this cup, please? Well, that just doesn't happen. So is something like this the solution where it's a reusable cup program instituted by the restaurant that you're going to or the place that you're going to that makes it easy for you? I wonder if more businesses are going to be thinking about doing that. You can email me your thoughts on this, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line.